And then he had to say, you know, you always complicate things. That's basically what he said to me. Why do you make things so complicated? And I said, God, I don't make things complicated. I just think about them a lot of different ways before I do anything. And he said, why don't you just listen to me and do it? Well, God, you know, I've got to make sure it's the right time, the right place, you know, if I have the ability, you know. And he said, quit complicating it. I tell you, you're ready. I know you. Well, that's what he was trying to tell me this week. And uh, on a certain day this week, after the bus route in the morning, I was arguing with God that I needed to go home and do some work. And he said, no, you're going to the Waffle House today. And I said, I go to the Waffle House a lot, God. I don't need to go today. I like going to the Waffle House. So for some reason, God's telling me, I don't want to go. And I said, okay, God, whatever reason you're telling me, I'll go. I figured it was just, you know, he's going to show me something in the Word. I said, God, you can show me the Bible at the house. Well, I walked in, sat down, the person waiting on me. I didn't think I knew them. And after a while, we got into a short conversation and realized that I knew her grandfather. I was his pastor. I had led him to Christ and she witnessed it when she was 10 years old at the church I was pastoring in Illinois. And she said, that's really you, isn't it? I had my hat on from the bus where I took it up. She goes, it is you. And I said, it is indeed. And uh, she said, my life has gone crazy and fallen apart. And I was asking God just the other day, is there a sign that you still know me, that you still care about me? And uh, there I was reminding her. And she said, you know, you used to make church so fun. I remember the funny stories you would tell. And my grandfather would come in and, and love church because you were there. And I thought, wow. A 10-year-old would be that impressionable. It surprised me. But she never forgot. And so, heard a little of the story, and I mentioned about Celebrate Recovery. And she said, I've been there. And I said, then you've seen me. She said, no, I haven't. And I said, I'm the guy on the stage doing the announcement almost every week. And she drops her mouth and goes, I've seen you, and I didn't even know it was you. It's wrong context. I thought you're still in Illinois somewhere. I said, that's a long time ago and a lot of heartaches ago. But I'm now in Kentucky and apparently this day I came to the Waffle House because God had a divine appointment. God makes divine appointments. And so when I left, I'm, I left and I came home and I wanted to tell my wife about it. And I'm going, isn't God great? He told me and I went. I was so obedient. <laughs> I was not. I was making it complicated telling him I didn't need to go. But He knows more than I do. And I'm thankful that I listened this time. But the truth of the matter is, when all of a sudden God makes sense and everything falls into places and all the pieces fit, kind of like synchronicity and all the gears mesh, all of a sudden you say, well, God, why did I ever question it in the first place? And then, I, then we tell the story later and say, well, you know, I, it was my obedience. <laughs> and I was so faithful... And we know full well we aren't all puffed up. We're going, not really. I didn't want to do it. But God got me to do it anyway. That's kind of like faith in Christ too, believing in Him. A lot of people still doubt that Jesus is who He said He was. They would ask Him over and over again, are you the Messiah or should we wait for another? John the Baptist sent people of his own company, his own disciples to Jesus and said, are you the Messiah or shall we wait for another? And they 
disciples of John the Baptist watched Jesus for an hour, and Jesus gave this answer. You saw the dead raised, the leper healed, the deaf, uh, the mute demon possessed, restored, and you saw the blind see all in the space of an hour. You tell John that, what you saw. He didn't say, I am the Messiah to him. And the question I used to ask myself is, why doesn't he just say it plainly? Why does he say, I am that guy? Yes, I am. He never did say it like that. But if you look at what scriptural fulfillment of prophecy, the historical evidence, all the documented facts about who Jesus is and His truth, it all lines up perfectly. There is no missed part where Jesus does not fulfill it. Yet some of us still have a no in terms of is He really Jesus, the Son of God, the Messiah, the King? Should I trust in Him or, or is it just something people say? Was He historical? Is He real? And that question still comes up in the light of everything perfectly lining up according to what God's Word said. According to history and according to documented fact. Yet we still doubt. But you know what? In a court of law it would stand as true. And Jesus could be convicted of being the Messiah. According to a court of law, there's enough evidence to convict him of being who he said he is. But we still have people who don't think so. The Jewish people didn't understand that at that time. They looked at him and said, are you the Messiah? They didn't know. They saw a lot of things happen. There is only yes in Jesus though. There is no hint of maybe or no according to the prophecies in the Old Testament. There are only the fulfillments as every single box is checked yes. By the way, I would check yes on those two boxes in the bulletin too. There is no double standard with Jesus. He's not double-minded. He's not two-faced. God isn't saying one thing and Jesus is only half fulfilling it. It is 100% all the same direction. And yet people still question and wonder if it's true and doubt and deny. They say He's a good man. He's a prophet. He's dead, not alive anymore. But I'll tell you why Jesus did not tell John the Baptist who He was plainly. Because according to the Jewish understanding, which is what John the Baptist was, and according to all the people in that time and place, there were four things that a Messiah had to be able to do. Four. The first one was to heal the lame. Excuse me, heal the leper. The second one was to give sight to the blind. The third one was to heal a, a mute demon-possessed person or to cast out a mute demon. And the fourth one was to raise someone who had been dead four days. You had to have all four. You couldn't have just one or two or three. You had to have all four. Now that deaf-mute one, if you will, or the mute uh, demon-possessed one has an interesting reason why they said that was a messianic character. Maybe I think I may have mentioned this a couple weeks ago, but when a priest or a rabbi at that time were to cast out a demon, which they believed even in the Jewish temple in demons, 
they would ask it its name. And then when the name was given, they would cast it out by name because they believed the name had power. That's why we don't know God's name because we can't have power over God. So if that demon is mute and doesn't speak, they can't cast it out because they have no power because they have no knowledge of the name. But Jesus cast out those that could not speak. That proved He was Messiah. But the raising the dead after four days. This one was an astounding one because they believed that the spirit of the departed stuck around for three days before it left. And any time during those three days, that person could be resurrected and it wouldn't be a messianic miracle. Anybody could do that one. False messiahs could do that. They believed that. It wasn't proof because it was in four days. Don't ask me why they thought that, but I will tell you this. After doing a lot of research in the last few weeks, they were very superstitious. Very superstitious. I'm not going to tell you a whole lot of things, but I will say this. That they believed if someone was unclean, it would make um, flowers wither if they walked by. That food would rot if someone was unclean and came near it. If you touched an unclean person, it meant you would get their disease. Because you were now ritually unclean. That's what they believed. Completely totally nonsense, some of it, because of what we know about how diseases are spread and things like that. But their ideas were strictly held and they protected themselves by not touching anybody unclean or who is not a Jew. True. Very true. So, there are two other things about the Messiah that they believed and still believe and the Jews are still looking for in their Messiah. And the first one is that it would be a suffering Messiah. A suffering Messiah. One that would be afflicted, wounded, hurt, bruised. They believe there would also be a second Messiah. A victorious Messiah. One that came with triumph to bring all the Israelites and all the Jewish nation into victory as their king. As their Messiah. So they thought there were two Messiahs. We know from Isaiah 53 that there is indeed a suffering Messiah. Maybe you've heard these verses. He was despised and rejected by men. The Jews believe this speaks to the Messiah. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid as it were our faces from him. We, he was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our grief and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. And we, like sheep, have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Does that sound like Jesus to you? The Jews said, we're looking for one like this who was oppressed and afflicted and he opened not his mouth like a sheep led to slaughter or a lamb. And as a sheep before its shear is silent, so he, this Messiah that they are still waiting for, opened not his mouth. Yet we know Jesus did every last one of those. Every part of that fulfilled 
in Christ. We wonder then why they can't see that, why they refuse that, and they just can't accept Jesus for some reason. But there's some more boxes they're looking for to be checked off that they still don't understand. Oh, if they would just see it. All the signs are unmistakably correct that Jesus is the Messiah. There is no question in any of it whether or not Jesus did it. Even to the point of riding on a donkey, the people praising Him and saying, Hosanna, blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord when He entered into Jerusalem that Palm Sunday, the first Palm Sunday. All of this fulfilled the Scripture. When He died at 3 p.m. and the shofar signified that the Passover lamb had been accepted for the Jewish feast of Passover, that it was over and the feast was done and they could resume their non-Sabbath activities. They blew a shofar at 3 p.m. at the second Jesus said it is finished. It all lines up. All the feasts in the Old Testament, there are seven. He's fulfilled four of them with three to come. Completely filled them. And yet they still, and even people who are not Jewish, but American and Islam, don't think he's the one. And they can't put their faith in him. Why do you harbor doubts about Jesus? Why would anyone? In John 11, where he's talking about the, the, the death of Lazarus and where he proved his Messiahship after raising Lazarus for four days. At the very beginning of that chapter, he has a, an encounter with the disciples far away from where um, Lazarus has been sick. And his sisters send for Jesus. And it says it like this in John 11, A certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany the town of Mary and her sister Martha. It was that Mary who anointed the Lord with fragrant oil and wiped His feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. Therefore the sister sent to Him saying, Lord, behold, He whom you love is sick. Now listen to what Jesus sends back to them. For a long time I thought He was saying this to the disciples, but He was sending word through the messenger that came to Him Back to the sisters in verse 4. When he heard this, he said, tell them this, this sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Sick, and he dies. Jesus stays there two days longer because he knows how long the fourth day will be that he has been dead. God will be glorified through that because it's the final proof of His Messiahship and He doesn't have to say anything to prove it. He does it. Jesus does not say He's the Messiah. He does the Messiah things. He acts. He moves. He does things. He doesn't say them, but proves them. And you know the story, Lazarus dies. And his sisters are grieving. If you hadn't been here, he wouldn't have died. Jesus is weeping. And she 
Martha, who comes out to him, says, your, Jesus says to her, your brother's going to rise again, Martha. And she says, oh, I know, I know, in the last day, I know that. And Jesus says, I am resurrection. You're looking at the life. Don't you get who I am yet? He's been dead four days. Don't you know that I'm Messiah yet? Don't you understand? Whoever believes in me, though he may die, he's going to live. Whoever lives and believes in me, though he die, uh, he shall never die. Do you believe this? And she says, yes, of course, I know this. Then Mary comes out. And he says the same thing to her. And they come to the tomb. And Jesus says this. Take the stone away. And Martha, not Mary. Martha, the busybody, who always has to see things done and get things done, realizes the situation. That's what Martha's are good for, to see what needs done in the situation and take care of it. And she announces, Jesus... You know, Lord, there's going to be a stench. He's been dead four days. I'm an organizer. I know how this works. He's been dead. Listen, four days. Not three, four. It's long enough where the bodies and spirit have departed and this man's starting to stink. And Jesus looks at her and says this, Did I not tell you if you would believe you would see the glory of God? Nowhere in this transaction when he arrives at the house to this point is that said. But it's said through the messenger that he sent to her in verse 4. This is for the glory of God. It's not unto death. She doesn't get he's the Messiah yet. That the Messiah needs the fourth day for the proof. She's about to learn, isn't she? She's about to learn. This is the last miracle Jesus did before they said he's got to go and we're doing it soon. Because the next thing he does is he goes to Jerusalem and celebrates the Passover with his disciples. That Holy Week he enters in. That's the following Sunday after this date. So Jesus is doing the last proof that he's the Messiah. And he comes out and what they say after that is that look, everybody's going after him. Because he's proven the fourth thing of the Messiah. Now they're all going out to him to celebrate and leave the temple and the priests and all those because here's the man who showed all the things that the Messiah does. He must be it. Let's go. And the church is getting empty. Because here's a man who says he's the Messiah, doesn't say he's the Messiah, but does Messiah things. And those in the church say, we're church people, we don't do anything godly. We just give you rules. Regulations. <laughs> Jesus said, if you believe, you will see the glory of God. He doesn't just say it to them. He says it to you and he says it to me. If you believe, you will see God's glory. And He doesn't mean one day in the future at the resurrection on the last day. He means the day you believe. Not the day you question, but the day the doubts go away. I knew God differently this last Tuesday when I came out of the Waffle House saying, God, you're so good. I was praising Him for that encounter. I was thanking Him. I was saying, God, You're so good. It's amazing what You do. Thank You for using me. I was excited. I didn't question whether God did it. There was no doubt in my mind. I couldn't orchestrate that. There's no way. 
I had no idea. I wasn't going there in the first place. I was going there in the last place. In my mind, God had other ideas. In the book of James, we read, Faith without works is dead. Faith, if it does not have works, is dead. Can't have a dead faith. It has to do something. And he goes on to say that some will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works and I'll show you my faith by my works. Mm -hmm. Can't go that way. You believe there's one God, you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. But listen to this 20th verse. But do you want to know, a foolish man, faith without works is dead. Mm-hmm. Listen to me. I said this two weeks ago. The opposite of faith is not doubt. The opposite of faith is inactivity. The opposite of love is doubt. If you don't love God and trust that He is who He is, you doubt and you don't believe. If you don't believe God loves you, you have doubts. But if you have faith, you act. If you don't have faith, you do nothing. If you don't believe Jesus is the Messiah, you're not going to act on it. If you believe He is, you're going to base your life on it. It's action. So this, according to faith, the first act of faith is to take God at His Word. The first step of faith, take God at His Word. Don't add to it, don't subtract to it, don't argue with it, just go and do. Whatever He says, take it as gospel from the mouth of God. And there is a second. And I want to tell you how this works. I was at Chrysalis and Jason, some of you know Jason McCown, he gave me permission to tell this story. He said uh, back in the day, he had an old car, wasn't doing real well. And, uh, and, he, and he used to keep a couple hundred dollar bills underneath the ashtray for the day that it would break down. That's long before credit cards were readily available and easy access to funds like that. And he said... That particular day, he had $20 in his pocket and those two $100 for the emergency for when that car eventually broke down under the ashtray. And uh, he said he doesn't pick up hitchhikers. But he was driving one day and God said, pick up that guy. And he said, I don't pick up hitchhikers. And God said, you're picking that one up. Argued for a minute with God. Sound familiar like me with the Waffle House, right? Argued a minute. Finally said, okay, I'm going. And he picked up the hitchhiker and the hitchhiker began to tell their story and the person was a believer and they were just needing to get to uh, the Waffle House of all places. That's where they were going to eat. And, um, and he got to the Waffle House. A guy prayed with Jason in the car. And uh, as he was praying, God whispered to Jason's heart, give him a $100 bill. And as uh, the man got out of the car, Jason reached into his wallet, pulled out the 20 and said, God told me to give you this. Handed it to him. The guy said, thank you. And he started to walk to the Waffle House and God started convicting him. God said, you just lied to that man. I never told you to give him 20. I told you to give him one of those $100 you got under that ashtray. And so Jason honks his horn, looks at the guy, waves him back. Guy comes to the window and he says, can I have that $20 back? And the guy's face fell. You could see it look like, what kind of Christian are you? And he said, I want to tell you I lied to you and I'm sorry. God didn't tell me to give you $20. 
And he lifted up his ashtray, pulled out a hundred dollar bill and said, he told me to give you 100. And I was being disobedient. This is what God told me to do. And the man burst into tears. And he said, really? I've been praying this very day, a hundred dollars is the exact amount I need to get out of the situation I'm in. And I said, God, if you love me, provide a hundred dollars. I need some hope today. Twenty dollars wasn't going to cut it. But when Jason was obedient and the man thanked him profusely and went away praising God, Jason put the $20 back in his wallet and, and drove off. Hey, God, you're so good. You're wonderful, man. He was fired up. God, you used me. You used me. That's better than that $100 ever would be. And he was going, yes, 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 yes. Yes, I got used by God. Yes, I got to bless people. I'm so excited. Amen. That's what he was doing afterward. Because he was obedient. Maybe later... But he was still obedient and he got to the yes. He got to the yes where he knew God could use him. And in that moment, he knew God did it. There was no question in his mind. God did it. And that's when the yes falls into your soul and you go, God is real. What else can I do? And you get fired up. Once something little happens, you want to do something bigger. That's what happens. The second part of faith is once you take God at His work, at His word, is to act. Act. Believe and then act. There's only two steps. We get the first one, but we don't do the second. Yes, I believe in you, God, but I don't want to go to Waffle House. Jason didn't mind going to Waffle House. He just wanted to get the 20. <laughs> it's kind of an interesting story, isn't it? And what's really funny is that the story of me in the Waffle House happened the day after Jason told that story, this last Monday. Is God coincidental or is He trying to tell us something this morning? Do you think He's trying to tell us we're looking for yes? Obedience comes before the blessing. God wants to know that you're more interested in faithfulness and loyalty than you are in the reward for it. That He wants to know you'll serve Him regardless of the outcome. Even if that man from Jason had taken the $100 and said thanks a lot and never said a thing, he would still been obedient. But God blessed him by the man's gratefulness and Jason being an answer to prayer. And I was an answer to prayer Tuesday. But the story doesn't stop there. Because a lot of people who are broken need hope. And I invited her to celebrate Recovery Friday. Well, apparently broken people know broken people. And she brought a row fool with her. She brought hope to others because God brought hope to her that day. She was giving up until that day and now she was spreading the news that God still is. From a hopeless person to a messenger in an instant. That's what happens when your yes from God falls in place to obedience. You're going to struggle until you come to yes in what you do. You're going to argue with God, debate it. Does it make sense? But when you seek to glorify Jesus and the opportunity to see His glory and God's glory, when you seek that, the opportunities will increase. In frequency and in scope. They will. Because God wants to use people to bless others and He will bless you for doing it. But He won't do it just for you to get the blessing. He does it because you're obedient. 
and say yes. So today I'm going to ask you to ask God to use you for His glory. And keep surrendering to Him until you get to the yes without the doubt. And if you believe, as Jesus promised in John 11, you will see God's glory. What did the scripture that Ginger read for us today say? Ah, I wondered when I'd get to that, didn't you? Well, listen to it now. As God is faithful, our word to you is not yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by us, by me, was not yes and no, but in Jesus was yes. For all of the promises of God in Him are yes. They are fulfilled. And in Him, amen, as in so be it. It's established to the glory of God through us. Now He who establishes us with you in Christ has anointed us is God. And He has also sealed us and given us the Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. So you know when you've done it and God's done it through you, the Spirit has sealed that moment and you know it's from God. Don't stop till you get to yes. Don't stop until you feel the freedom that God is pouring through you that's going to transform the world around you. Jason was one person. I am one person but my one person had some more people getting hope this last Friday. And they know more people who need hope. But you will not share hope if you don't find it. And when you get that yes and all the boxes inside of you are checked, you go, God, why did I ever doubt? Why did I ever doubt? I can't tell you that your yes is your yes. I can tell you your yes is God's yes. They're promised as yes, and He is the true and only Messiah. As I started this out, I talked about I make things complicated. It's not hard. Jesus is Messiah. I'm not. He runs it. Not me. I need to stop complicating things. Maybe you do too. So I'm going to let go of the no's and try to strive for God's yeses in all that I do. And I'm going to challenge you this morning that if you're still not at those points of yes to God where the doubts are still present, that you keep pressing through and say, God, I'm going to believe until I get to yes. I'm going to press through and I'm going to believe. I'm going to act as I understand you telling me to do until the yes happens and I see others transformed around me as well. It's awesome. Let me tell you something. The greatest blessing that Jason and I had wasn't what I got. It's what God gave. And I was witness to His glory that God included me. That God included Him. And God includes you. Are you up to saying yes to that kind of life? Would you pray with me? Gracious Heavenly Father, I know that there's always a time to respond to you, and that day is now, today, while your word is going forth. So, Heavenly Father, if there's an 
anyone here today that is struggling and trying to find a reason to believe that you will say, all the boxes are checked, just believe and watch what I do. If you believe, you will see God's glory, your son told us. And so, Heavenly Father, we're going to embrace that and hold that and claim in all of the promises that yes in Jesus are true for us when we're in him. So, God, as a church and as individuals, as families, as friends, as people who are hungry and thirsty for a great move from you and those who don't even know what that is, for each person here, Heavenly Father, I ask that you would speak to our hearts now and remind us, any moment, at any time, you can show up. And the yes changes everything. Thank you for saying yes to us in Christ. Amen.